If you would be turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, um, it, it was interesting this week, we were, kind of, we were laughing at the office, one of the commentaries on Daniel um, has a, a section called homiletical suggestions, and for those of you who don't know the word homiletics, just essentially means preaching or message, giving of a message, and this was the suggestion, we can, we can think of no reason that you would preach a sermon on this text. And so that book was thrown away, uh, and uh, summarily. No, it was just put on the uh, library shelf. And so we were laughing about that. It was like, oh, that's an auspicious start to a sermon, uh, and to, to kind of thinking this through. Um, but we are nearing the end of our journey in the book of Daniel, and, um, and hopefully it's been a blessing to you, and hopefully what you are taking away from it is, in fact, the main message, which is that God is sovereign and faithful in the midst of very uncertain times. But I don't want us to think that there is a, an infinite uncertainty coming. No, there's not. In fact, we have a, an infinite certainty instead, which is that God loves his people, and he will always ensure that there's a remnant. He will always ensure that his worship continues through his church, right? That's his main means of doing that. The means of grace will always be present for his people, always, even in the midst of exile, like Daniel and his friends have experienced, and if you remember, he, he doesn't make it out. In fact, this is near the end. This is in that, uh, the end of the 70 years of exile for his people. In fact, it's a little beyond that because they've actually returned, as Robbie talked about last week, to begin building the temple. And if you remember what Robbie talked about is they immediately, immediately came under fire. That it was an, immediately, it was a difficult process. It wasn't just that they go and everything's great and this is the, this is it. But if you remember, they had been warned there would be subsequent kingdoms that would come that would oppose them. And as we've been seeing in Daniel, it's interesting how that, that from the very beginning, that vision was telescoped all the way to the end. Remember, the original emphasis was on the fourth kingdom, which doesn't really get mentioned again much in the book of Daniel. And now we've been drawing more and more in on the, the battle in the second and the third kingdoms between those two kingdoms. And if you remember, the second kingdom very clearly was stated to be the Medo-Persian kingdom. And the third kingdom very clearly was stated to be Greece, right? And so he's going to actually telescope even further into the third kingdom and show us a civil war that breaks out between the north and the south, which is the, the north kingdom being the Seleucids, which you may remember that term because Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes comes from that. We've heard a lot about him. He's going to talk about him again, but he's not the main emphasis. The emphasis is actually on some of the dispute between those two kingdoms, which shows that no matter what man tries to do, he is always at war. He is never satisfied. And no earthly kingdom will remain. There is always always, always, until Christ returns, going to be upheaval among people. That's tough for us because there are seasons in which it's greater than others, correct? Right? There seems to be seasons in which we can kind of get along for a second and things seem okay, but that also depends on what people group you're in, by the way. So you want to always be careful about hearkening back to the halcyon days because you're cutting off large measures of the people of God, as it turns out. Right? Um, not, not, just, not, just, not just people like us, but people of God, because remember, he comes because of the Abrahamic covenant to redeem from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And when every tongue, tribe, and nation does not have peace, we should not be satisfied. And we shouldn't be satisfied because we can't, we can't make it stay anyway. We should be longing for 
come Lord Jesus, as the book of Revelation ends, right? So what we have is this chapter 11 is the middle of middle portion of this, 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision. That's critical to how you understand verse 1. Uh, it's also critical to how you understand some of the ending of it as well. But before we do that, I want to go back and read again Psalm 146. Um, because I think it, it's actually, it's critical to, uh, I think, what's coming Tuesday, right? I think it's critical to us understanding this passage. Um, and I think it's just going to be good for our soul to hear it again. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Now, that's a pretty significant commitment, don't you think? That we would praise the Lord. Because, hey, listen, let's be honest. Do you feel like praising God every single day? You don't even have to raise your hand. It's all of us. Every single one of us. We, we have our moments where we just don't feel it. But the psalmist is saying, I'm committed to it for a reason, right? The psalm doesn't stop there. He says, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes or subtext, princesses, right, Leslie? Put, put not your trust in princesses or princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Now, that's a good qualification of that term son of man because there is a son of man in whom is salvation, correct? And who is that that Daniel declares from Daniel 9? Or Daniel 7, rather. Who's the son of man that can bring salvation? Christ alone. See, this is why we did the assurance of pardon that we did, right? Some of you, again, are probably thinking, man, that, that seemed kind of odd. But remember, remember that it is the cross that defeats all earthly kingdoms and death and Hades. Remember that at the cross, the, the Roman centurion who participated, and others, it's not just him, by the way. Remember, it was plural there. And others looked up and said, surely, surely this was the Son of God. And they just saw a man die. But it's something in how he died. Remember, it says he gave up his spirit. He died for us so that we could be redeemed to God. Now, the reason we read that assurance of pardon and saying it is finished is because that's important for us to remember as Tuesday looms. It is finished. It doesn't, not, don't hear me say, don't go stand in line for multiple hours and do your civic duty. Please, by all means, do that and get your sticker and put it on Facebook so everybody knows you voted because that's important, apparently. But remember that it is finished. Remember that between the now and the not yet, Christ reigns. Remember that there is a certainty that surpasses all earthly kingdoms and all earthly wisdom and all earthly knowledge. Let me read on. It says, Put not your trust in princes and in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked, he brings ruin. The Lord will, will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations 
Praise the Lord. And hopefully what you heard in there too was a little echo of Isaiah, a portion of Isaiah that Christ actually takes up in Luke chapter four and reads it and says, hey, this is going down right now. And remember how they reacted, right? They, they all ran up and wanted to give him the right hand of fellowship and hug him. No, they wanted to give him the right foot of fellowship. And they wanted to kill him. And remember, he had to disappear because his time had not yet come. It wasn't time for Matthew 27. It wasn't time for him to cry from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to the question is because he loves his people. He was able to endure that shame for the joy that was set before him, which is our redemption, the finishedness of the gospel. Amen? So that's really important as we step into Daniel chapter 11 that we keep all of that in mind because they're going to see kings come and go. Which one should they trust? And remember, these are kings they didn't get to vote for, by the way. But they knew that their sovereign Lord was part of this. So this is the pushing back of the curtain on history. In fact, this chapter is so accurate that scholars say there's no possible way it was written before it happened. There's no way it could have been. It's too accurate. It had to be written after. Well, that's only if you don't believe in prophecy or miracles. And why do you need to yank? Why would you want to yank that out from underneath you? A God who can see around the corners of history. No, you don't want that. Because he might. Here's why we do it, by the way. This is why we avoid people who confront us. This is why we avoid people who may actually tell us we're wrong about something. Oh, egads, worst thing in the world. Is because we don't want to know. We don't. We want to kind of continue in our prideful and arrogant bliss, known as ignorance. Because ignorance is bliss, right? And we don't want to have someone be able to see that deep down inside of us. And tell us we're wrong about something. But yet we miss that he's not saying that we're wrong so that he can condemn us. Why does he do what he does? He's saying, no, so I can redeem you and love you. And that is the reason that we have what we have all ought to be in our community around each other. We ought to know each other well enough to be able to tell each other the truth and survive the reality that on our best day, according to Scripture, on your best day, at, at, at your most amazing, you're only 50% right, according to Paul. You see through a glass half darkly. Now, am I pressing that a little bit? Yeah, because I think it's too high, actually. On our best days, I don't even know if we're that right. And yet, we're so fearful of somebody knowing. We're so fearful of being close. We're so fearful of the God who can prophesy and tell us the future. So we end up tearing down the underpinnings. Another great thing about Daniel 11 that you want to pay attention to is notice the arc. See, Daniel is this, this progressive parallelism that's telling more and more and more and deeper parts of the same story. And if you remember, the kingdoms were first described as what? Horrible beasts. And some of you had the courage to draw them, which was awesome. And then the next time they're mentioned, what are they described as? Sacrificial animals, just a goat and a, and, and, and a uh, not a lamb, but a sheep and a goat. Um, and then they're now described as human kings. Why that progression? Because the people of God need to see that those horrible beasts that you first saw are nothing more than men who will lay in their graves someday. Nothing more than those who also bear the image of God who are no greater than you and are trying to figure it out just like you are. 
and that they cannot make it last. So what we see here is God pushing back more than just the curtain. He's revealing what's really going on. And it's just men trying to play with toys and trying to build kingdoms and do so at the behest and the loss of life. How foolish they are. Instead, serve the king who will preserve life for all of eternity. So, having said all that, let's turn to the text. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to expose every historical detail jot and tittle for the whole chapter. We just don't have time for that. I'm going to do enough on the front end that hopefully you'll believe me for what I'm going to say on the back end. I don't even know if that's the main point. of. The, I really don't think that's the main point of the chapter. There's, there's certainly a heart to the chapter, which is where he calls the people of God to stand firm, take action, and show others in wisdom, help them to understand what's really going on. That really is the heart of the chapter. Um, and it's said like this, God and his people will be opposed in history. But his people are to stand firm, take action, and help others to understand his faithfulness to his redemptive promises. So as we step into this, um, I'm going to do verses 1 through 19. This is the first part of the civil war. This is the rise of the Seleucid kings. So if you would, hear God's word again. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let me take a time out right there and tell you who's talking. So Daniel's not talking here. It's still the heavenly visitor, which Robbie said is either an angelic being or Jesus, and he came down on the side of Jesus, as do I. So Jesus is still talking here, so you can't, the, the chapter breaks oftentimes throw us off a little bit. This is a continuation of chapter 10. So when he's talking about um, opposing the prince of Persia, and Michael's the only one who ha- helped him, that's what he's saying. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, that means he's opposing the Persian one against the, the Medo, the Median king. And it goes on. He says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Let me pause right there for a second. Now, what he's talking about here is the fourth Persian king is one that you would know of. His name is Xerxes I, and you know of him from the book of Esther right? It is actually the king that she marries. He does, in fact, invade Greece um, and is defeated at the Battle of Salamis. We also know that Alexander the Great, who's the great king of Greece who did as he thought he willed, has his kingdom broken up into four parts, which we've talked about here before. Two of those kingdoms feature into this text, the, the kingdom to the south, which is in Egypt, which is the Ptolemies, and the kingdom to the north, which is Syria, which is the Seleucids. And so he, Alexander does not have a child who reigns after him. Now think about that for a second. Here he was one of the greatest rulers in all of the world, and his kingdom really was very brief. It did not last very long at all and was broken up as soon as he died into four and lost thereafter. And so right here in Scripture we see so far it's incredibly accurate. Verse 5, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. 
After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she will be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Let me pause again. This is a uh, from history, we know it specifically started in 250 BC when Ptolemy II offered his daughter, great Egyptian name by the way, Bernice, to <laughs> Antiochus II, right? And so, and so Antiochus II is willing to do this because they're trying to merge the kingdoms. But see, here's our problem. Antiochus II had a jealous wife. She had a really great Syrian name. Her name is Laodice. And so Laodice, finding out that Bernice was coming in to usurp her kingdom, poisons both her and Bernice's son, kills them both. And the plan is foiled. Less than a year later, Ptolemy II dies, as is prophesied. Going on. It said, and from a branch from her being Bernice, roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now, this is speaking of Bernice's brother who rises up and attacks the king of the north, the Seleucid kings. He makes it all the way into the capital, steals a bunch of their stuff, heads back, right? Now, remember, this was once all one kingdom, and they're attacking each other internally. And then one of the Ptolemies rises and, and attacks and, and so on and so on and so on. And so it's just upheaval after all that Alexander had accomplished in making one great kingdom. Foreigners rose in his place and did what they wanted to with what he had amassed. And you should be hearing echoes of Ecclesiastes as I speak. All that you amass in this life, if it is for your purpose, someday somebody's going to make a decision about what ought to be done with it. No matter how great it is, it doesn't matter if it's a legacy as great as Alexander the Great's or something as simple as a collection of Hot Wheel cars. Somebody is going to do with them whatever they want. And you don't get to decide, no matter what your will says. At some point, it goes the way it's going to go. Picking up in verse 10, his sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again rise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fall. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, 
and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give them the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Did you hear that? It's just back and forth and back and forth. And if that weren't enough, the kings of the north and the south have their own people turning on them. And I hope that what you heard was it says that they slaughtered tens of thousands. Did he prevail? No. He raised a force even bigger and did more and tried all. Did he prevail? No. Kingdoms rise and they fall because of the movement of the sovereignty of God's hands. Think about this for a second. Why? What, what do they need? What was missing in Egypt near the Nile with all that they had that they needed from Syria? What was, in, what was in Egypt that Syria didn't have? That they couldn't just live at peace with the kingdoms that they themselves didn't, they didn't even make for themselves. Alexander handed it to them and they just managed to break them up into four. See, man is never satisfied. Woman is never satisfied. We are never satisfied with what we have. It's never enough. Because as I think Augustine is the one who said this, we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And we will wander and search until that hole is filled. And that is grace, actually. Because we shove a lot of other stuff in there, don't we? We try to make a lot of other things work. We build all kinds of kingdoms, don't we? And we're proud of them. And yet we can't make them stay. We were driving to Tallahassee to see my daughter at Florida State University. And, and I was, uh, it was interesting as we were driving, seeing all of these far, this farmland the, through the area that we drove in several different places and all of this, these fields of cotton and how things have changed so much. And what those fields once represented in terms of just the awfulness and the worst of what man can offer. And yet, has the Industrial Revolution changed our heart? Do we love each other any better now that machines do what slaves once did? And if you know anything about farming, it's an insane set of circumstances as far as the government is concerned, as far as how viable that even is anymore to do. And yet, this entire way of life, these entire towns that were built on this, they cannot make it stay. It was interesting to me to look at all these broken down homes and think, what would it be like to live in a town like Quitman? I don't even like the name of it. Quit, man. Just go somewhere else. Like Tallahassee. It's beautiful. It's not. Tallahassee's not beautiful either. My heart was heavy with just the darkness that exists in all these places. And here you have this beautiful university, this historic university, started by a slave owner. They want to tear his statue down, but they haven't been able to do it yet. 
And yet there's all these buildings and all these kids just running around throwing trash everywhere because they're just, they're wasted and they're broken. And it's like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because we're never satisfied. It is never enough for us. We, like them, conduct civil war after civil war, both inside and out. We do it in the church. We're not satisfied with anything that we have. We're constantly pushing. If we're not recognized, we're going to cause problems. If we, you know, it's just, it's just on and on and on. It's all of us. It's never enough for us unless it's God. Only God truly is enough for us in Christ. So what should we take away from this portion of scripture? Listen to what Brian Chappell has to say about this. He says, the key ideas about these empires are expressed in the early verses, which state that the king shall arise, become strong, and shall be broken. These very words, or some form of them, occur over and over again in this chapter as the Lord establishes a pattern for all earthly kingdoms. They arise, they become strong, and then they are broken. A pattern that is quite different from the final kingdom predicted, the kingdom of our Lord. So my question for you is, what do you turn to, or who do you turn to for comfort in all of the historical turmoil that's going on in our world? And just so you know, this isn't a unique time, really. It's really not. We, we've done all this kind of stuff before. As Ecclesiastes says, ain't nothing new under the sun. You may say, yeah, but we have... We've really made it all. I mean, we, we have, it's just arrogance for us to think that somehow we've made it worse than ever, right? That somehow we can be the worst in history. Well, I don't want that crown. I don't know why you would either. The truth is, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been done, right? You don't think in the, the Seleucid and the Ptolemy days that it wasn't awful, that they didn't say awful things about each other? It's interesting, there's a quote from Kierkegaard from 1850. It's a great chapter that he talks about media in 1850 being an instrument of the empire and being able to sway and swing kings at its own behest. He calls it the rabid dog that the king keeps on a chain. And he lets it off whenever he wants, uh, wants something torn down. And we all cheer when the dog gets crazy and gets loose, so long as he's not chewing on us. As soon as he turns on us, we, we scream, and the king has to put him back on the leash. That's Kierkegaard, 1850. that sound familiar to y'all? We've been doing this for a long time. And what's important is that we stand upon a firm foundation. Because as we saw in this chapter, the kingdoms rise and fall, rise and fall. So let's turn back and see the rise of one of the worst, Antiochus IV. We won't spend a lot of time here because we've talked about him before. Um, but this is, this is where we, it gives rise to one of the worst kings in history. This is uh, verses 20 through 35. Give your attention again to the reading of God's word. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an executor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. This is a reference to Antiochus III, by the way. Uh, this portion. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. His, he shall come without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Hmm, familiar. Armies shall utterly be swept away before him and be broken, even the prince of the covenant. Now that more than likely is a reference to one of the high priests in Jerusalem. There's two options, um, Onias being one of them. 
It goes on to say, and from that time uh, that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up the power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great army, a great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Let me pause right there. So you can have the best military in the world. You can have all of the strength and the power at your fingertips. But there's one thing that you cannot mitigate against, which is what? An overthrow from within. Now, that's an interesting metaphor for us now, isn't it? You can have all of the good deeds, and you can have all of the best practices, and you can do all of the great right things, but what you cannot mediate against is the darkness and the brokenness of your own heart. Only Christ can transform your heart. We, too, think at times we have built a mighty army around us. We too think that we are strong because of certain deeds and things of that nature. And we are not. In fact, we are most at risk to be taken down and swept away, just as Ptolemy was here, Ptolemy the Fourth. So it's important for us to also see ourselves here and not just read this as history that is abstract to us. No, this is us in miniature as well. This is, is, is us being displayed in the kingdoms of the world. He goes on, even those who eat his food shall break him. How many parents in here have ever felt that? His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Do you hear that? They're going to purpose their hearts to do evil. They're going to lie to each other at the same table. They're going to make promises they cannot keep because there's a sovereign God who's appointed a time at which is their end. A time in which his kingdom will be ushered in. Don't forget Daniel 7. The one who will come in the clouds, the king who will set up the kingdom that will reign forevermore. You can't lose that. Verse 28, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Katim shall come against him. Pause real quick. That's a reference to Rome. Rome, the fourth kingdom, is starting to get involved. That is a harbinger. And he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. 
when they stumble. They shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Did you hear that? So this is about Antiochus IV. We've talked about this before. How, uh, and, and this is more of the story. So it, when Rome, the, the ships of Katim essentially turned them back from what they were intending to do in the south, what do you think a tyrant is going to do? You see, when people don't get their way, they've got to exact their furor and their energy somewhere. Right? They have to pour it out somewhere. I've been reading this book called God, Dr. Buzzard, and the Bolito Man, which is by Cornelia Walker Bailey, and it's about Sapelo Island. And she talked about how one of the things that was so hard for them is their fathers would get together on Friday night and drink. And as they drank, they would become more and more enraged at the plantation owners and how they'd been mistreated. And there was nothing that they could do against the buckra, which is an epithet for white slave owner. And so they would go home and take it out on their families. And she said, she made the comment, she said, it's terrible to have one father Monday through Friday morning and have a monster from Friday night until Sunday afternoon. And I'm not, I'm not condemning them for that. I'm just saying, this is human nature. Who are we the hardest on? Those we love the most. Right? We've been doing this for a long time. And so when... When Antiochus IV cannot have his way, he then turns his fury toward Jerusalem and toward God and the people of God. And some of how he draws them astray is by flattery. You need to pay attention to this because we are easily drawn away by flattery because we don't want to be wrong. We want someone telling us we're right all the time. And we want someone always, always making sure to puff us up and say, so someone loving us enough to say, you are off the rails. You were off the rails. And you can get back on, by the way, because of Jesus. And so he turns his fury. But notice what it said that the people of God were to do. And this is important for us. Three things. One, stand firm. How has Daniel done that? How's Daniel exemplified standing firm? Remember in Daniel chapter 6, when the, the satraps wanted to di dispose of him, they couldn't find anything wrong with him, so what'd they have to do? We know what he does. Well, he loves to pray. So let's take that away from him, and he'll violate that, and he's in trouble. Daniel, as soon as he heard the edict had been signed, where'd he go? He went right home to pray. And he did exactly what he'd always done. He stood firm. It also says to take action. Now, many of you are like, yeah, I knew we was getting to this. This is where you get to post stuff and get to say things. You get to light people up, comment, sex. You're like, come. Woo. No. No, no, no. Take action means to actually do that which is going to facilitate the third part, which is to help others become wise in understanding God's promises. The action that you are to take is to ensure that you can share the gospel. You're to be disciples who make disciples. We all are. And there's no more fertile ground, unfortunately, than in the midst of persecution. People actually pay attention completely different then. And so, what the people of God are called to do is exactly that. Notice, even some of them that are wise, they're going to fall away because of flattery. So, it'd be important for us to make sure that we, in humility, recognize any of us can be swept away. Any of us. 
And it says that actually some of us who will be swept away, it actually will be for our good. God's going to use even that to purify and test us and make us more than we could be otherwise. So notice that one of the worst times in the history of God's people is used and leveraged by God for his glory. That's his promise, always. That has not changed. Read the book of Revelation. It's just more of this being said in broader and greater pictures. So what is it that we're supposed to get out of this, this Antiochus who will come? Listen to what Ian Duguid says. He says, the people of God's experience should therefore not surprise them. As if something unexpected and out of control were in control of these machinations as well. Nor should they seek to take matters into their own hands. As if, by rising up against the authorities, they could bring about the establishment of God's kingdom more swiftly. Moral majority, anybody? There's an article in the New Yorker about Russell Moore called the New Moral Minority. The moral majority did more to harm us than anything I think that's happened in the last hundred years. We thought we had a kingdom, and we treated people as if the kingdom had come, and judgment was ours to mete out. Well, the sword's no longer in our fist. It's no longer in our fist. And so he goes on to say, Patient endurance would continue to be the order of the day until God intervened to set up his kingdom. We are called to stand firm, take action to continue to help others know, and those of us who are wise and who understand to help others understand what's really happening. It is our job to help the kingdom continue to grow even under the worst of circumstances. This next portion of Scripture is actually going to telescope even further out. Most scholars agree that this is not about Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. This is actually about the last Antichrist. And there's something important you need to know about the last Antichrist, and I'm going to tell you, but not till the end. So, here we go. Picking it back up, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasure of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. 
But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Very important. That's what you need to know about the last Antichrist. He will come to his end, and there will be no one to help him. Now, you may say, that sounds a lot like Antiochus. Well, remember, there are multiple Antichrists, by the way, despite what you've heard in the South and other places, I suppose. There are multiple Antichrists, according to 1 John. Anybody who opposes God, thinks himself God, is in legion with the Antichrist. And with enough power, you too can be called an Antichrist. So this Antichrist will supplant all others. He will declare himself God of gods. And he will seek to destroy and sweep away. But notice his end. It's not even, think about it, as far as the annals of war history, this isn't much. All that's said about him is, eh, eh, he ends. No one's going to help him. And moving right along to chapter 12, which talks about the resurrection next week. So it's important for us that we remember what the bottom line is. Listen to what Del Ralph Davis says of this. He says, the bottom line is instructive. It's as if the Lord says to us, you must be prepared. In the world you will have tribulation, which is just a reference to John 16, 33. But don't think too much of the tribulator. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying, he will be easily disposed of. That should put steel in our bones in case we have to face the final scourge of history. So as we, as we finish out this portion of Daniel, my hope is that what you, have, what you will take away is that God knows history. It's not as if he is ignorant to the, the details. In fact, he's shown that he knows the details all the way down to the smallest. And yet, that's not what matters most. What matters most in the midst of those details is that his people continue to glorify and worship him regardless of what another man who's fallible and who will die will do. We, as Tuesday approaches, should have steel in our bones because of who God is, not because of who's coming. And we should work very hard. Listen to me. We should work very hard to remain unified as a people and not in any way, shape, or form treat one another as if they are ignorant and don't care about anything. We have to recognize that there are multiple perspectives and you can only see so many. We don't even have the, fur, the, the foggiest idea what the next four years will look like or the next eight or the next 16. America is not the promised land. It's not New Zion. It's not the point of the story. It is but a kingdom that will rise, and guess what it will do? It will fall. Whether that's at the coming of Christ, right? Because I don't know if in the temple in heaven there's going to be like the Christian flag and the American flag is going to be there. Probably not. Uh, but what will be there is representatives from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What will be there is those you thought were your enemies. What will be there are those that you didn't care too much about. What will be there are those you thought were wrong. Like I said, my, 
My great, I hope, like crazy, Nebuchadnezzar catches those of us who didn't think he was there. He comes up and he's like, looking at your life, I really didn't think you were going to make it in either. But hey, praise God for grace, right? So what is the most important truth concerning the last Antichrist? He will fall. His, his, whatever he's able to do, which is going to be horrible, by the way, it will only go so far. And you need to know that. And you need to take heart in the midst of that because your God is sovereign. Your God is good. Your God is faithful. Our God will finish what he started. That which he started, he will finish. And that's good news for you too because that which he's started in you, he will finish. And it's going to take your entire lifetime for you to be sanctified. None of us have arrived anywhere. In fact, the further along I go, I feel like I'm becoming dumber in some respects. Like I don't know near as much as I thought I knew. I'm realizing how limited my vision is. And even in that, I don't understand the fullness of it. So what do we learn from Daniel chapter 11? One, that opposing kingdoms will rise and grow strong. I want to pause there. You just need to know that. There are going to be awful things that happen and it will not be the end of the world. It's just not going to be. What it will do is, is actually shake out those of you who are and those of you who aren't. And then it says they will be broken in God's sovereignty. Second, God's people will suffer as a result. We're going to. Christ told us we would. I'm not signing up for it. I'm not eager about it either. And if you're not all that eager about it, I'd feel like more of you'd show up at the prayer meetings to try to keep it at bay. But that's another issue now, isn't it? God's people will suffer as a result, but most, but must stand firm, take action, and make disciples. The story doesn't, just because the kingdoms and the kings and the queens change doesn't mean our calling changes. And the last Antichrist will oppose God furiously, but he will come to an end. Listen to what John Calvin prayed about this text. Grant, Almighty God, as in these days the affairs of the world are in a state of disturbance. Now, when is he praying this, by the way? What century? 16th. We've been doing this for a long time. Grant, Almighty God, as in these days, the affairs of the world are in a state of disturbance. And as wherever we turn our eyes, we see nothing but horrible confusion. Grant, I pray, that we may be attentive to thy teaching. May we never wander after our own imaginations, never be drawn aside by any cares, and never turn aside from our stated course. May we remain fixed in thy word always seeking thee and always relying on thy providence, ever call upon thee in the name of thine only begotten Son. Amen. I skipped a part. May we never hesitate concerning our safety as thou hast undertaken to be the guardian of our salvation, but ever call upon thee in the name of thine only begotten Son. Amen. Now I want to challenge you to take that prayer and, and make it your own or take Psalm 146 and pray it from now through Tuesday. If Jesus doesn't come back on Tuesday, keep praying, okay? Because there's going to be a need for it. We need to be reminded of the truth of God's word. And as Calvin says, that we are held fast by him. He loves us. 
So as we're nearing the end of Daniel, next week, chapter 12, is going to be a telescoping even further into the future, speaking of the resurrection and other good things to come. Daniel doesn't end at 11 with the death of just the Antichrist. He's going to talk about, as Revelation does, what's coming. So I pray that you would take time to prepare your hearts for that then. We're almost to Advent, by the way, and we'll start Advent on November 27th, and that will extend all the way through the new year. And so we'll be in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And guess what the message of that's going to be? Pretty similar to this, actually. The whole Bible, as it turns out, is about God's sovereignty and faithfulness. I don't know if you knew that or not. And so we're going to keep up with that message. Let me just say this. Are we going to worship on Christmas Day? Yep, we are. Because it falls on Sunday. And the Lord's Day, as it turns out, falls on Sunday. So the only thing that we'll really do different on that day is we won't set up the screens just to try to, try to cut down on some of the setup and tear down. We won't have kinder, uh, threes and fours, kindergarten, or first and second grade. We will, we will have infants and toddlers. Everybody understand that? So we'll need some help in setting up and tearing down. And you may be thinking, can we show up in our pajamas? That's your conscience. I, I, I don't care what you do. Uh, uh, I'm not going to approve or disapprove of that. That's on you. And, and is, it, is it going to ruin your kids so that they're going to wind up on Oprah someday because they had to come to church on Christmas? I, I doubt it. But if it does, um, you can have your money back. All right? That's my guarantee to you. So we're going to worship on that. Are we going to worship on New Year's? Because there's football and there's, you know, a little imbibbing that goes on. Yeah. We're going to do all the normal stuff on New Year's just like I don't know. It was the day of worship. And so that's that. And with all of that said, let me pray for us. Father, <clears throat> thank you that you're the God of history. Thank you that we don't have to put our trust in princes or getting everything right ourselves. Thank you that we have a sure and fixed end. Thank you that you are patient and you tarry so the family could grow bigger. Help us to remember that. The reason you've yet to come back and call all things to order and make all things new and call to judgment those who are outside of your kingdom is because you are gracious even to us. And so, Lord, may we be about the business that is called for in your tarrying, which is to stand firm, and the means of grace that you have provided according to your word. To take action so that the message can continue to go forward and churches can be planted. And to use the wisdom that your spirit gives to us to help others to understand how good and gracious you are. God, thank you that even though all of this civil war takes place in time, and sometimes we get tangled up in it, and sometimes it happens right in our own towns, in our own homes even, you are good, and you determine when it will end. You won't let it go on forever and ever. Because you are good, and you are gracious, gracious and you are just, and you are merciful. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that being wrong is not the worst thing in the world. Thank you, God, that you are so good to us. I pray that as we finish out this service today, that our understanding of that would be richer. In Christ's name, amen.